Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm so happy to have all of you out there with us for today's show. Uh, during the show today, we're going to talk about what uh, most people consider one of the most important rulings that the United States Supreme Court has uh, made this uh, year uh, during their session, which started late last year. Um, it's a ruling on the independent state legislature theory. And uh, there are those who say that it is an, uh, a decision that preserves the American democracy, at least for the time being. And we'll talk about why there's that uh, a question as to whether uh, there could be some changes down the road. But we'll talk about that um, in, in just a few minutes. But I, but I really want to start the show by talking about a big state issue uh, that involves both Senator John Ossoff and Governor Brian, Governor Brian Kemp. So we got a lot on the program to discuss today. Let me get right to introducing uh, the panel uh, as usual, on Wednesday, my partner from the AJC is Greg Bluestein. Greg Bluestein, you know that throughout the history of this show, I've always been so grateful to have you and your colleagues from the AJC uh, be partners of mine uh, on Political Rewind. But I got to say, Greg, there is no one who is as tireless and relentless a reporter than you are. You have fed us so many stories, and I mean by that all of your readers, so many stories to talk about. In today's show alone, I think there are at least three, maybe four stories that you published over the last 24 hours that we are going to talk about. So, Greg, I just want to say how much I value you as a partner on the show. Well, Bill, right back at you. It's been such an honor to be a part of this show for the last nine-plus years and you know, it goes to show you that there is no such thing as a quiet week in Georgia politics. I know there's been, even in the dog days of summer, like right now, there's so much to talk about. Yeah, and I know you love that. Um, professor mm -hmm. Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Uh, Andra, you were one of the first of the uh, what expanded into a relatively large and very uh, uh, terrific group of political scientists who now come on this show. We're going to introduce a couple of, of, of your colleagues in a minute. Um, but you've been on from the earliest days, too. And once again, uh, you have been so highly valued, and you know how much our listeners love hearing from you. So thanks for being here today, Andra. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, and it's been an honor to be a part of this show. Well, thank you very much. Um, Charles Bullock is back with us. He's, uh, I've said this often, uh, the dean of political science professors uh, in Georgia. He's been working at the University of Georgia, uh, teaching political science since the late 60s. And Charles, you know, it's interesting, back when we were doing the show from the studio in the pre-pandemic days, we didn't have you on quite as often because all the panelists had to come in mm -hmm. and 
we thought it was asking you a little too much to drive in from Athens. But since we've all been doing the show from offices and homes by Zoom, we've had you on frequently, and I'm so happy you've enriched the show by your presence, Charles. Well, it's always a great pleasure to be with you and with the other guests you have on this show because it's such a great show. It's uh, I view it as part of the educational process that by being with you and the other folks here, reach far more people than I would ever see in a classroom. So thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> it's been great. And Alan Abramowitz, Professor Emeritus now of Political Science at Emory University. Um, when, one of the first times we had you on the show, it was when uh, I had read your book about negative partisanship, which you put into the vernacular for political scientists and for journalists uh, everywhere. And uh, I thought you should be kind of an intimidating presence for me. I'm not quite sure why. But <laughs> since we've had you on frequently, I think all of us now who have gotten to know you a little better realize that you have a relatively corny sense of humor. <laughs> and, and one of your real passions in life is playing guitar and now fiddle. So you're just kind of a regular guy who happens to be brilliant in your analysis of political of political issues, Alan. Well, Bill, I have to say intimidating is not a word that's often used to describe me. Um, but uh, uh, I just want to second what all the other guests have said today about uh, you know, how much I've enjoyed being on the show and getting to interact with you and with the other folks, including, of course, the the folks who are who are joining you today. What a great what a great group! And it's just been it's always fun. It's always enlightening, and uh, uh, you know it's it's just been such an important part of the whole you know uh, news uh, uh, universe here uh, uh, for 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 people who listen to the show i mean it's just, it's i know how how much they appreciate it how much they depend on it well thank you for uh that and okay let's get right to it greg bluestein i want to talk about what happened in bainbridge georgia yesterday which you reported on um there was a groundbreaking or a ceremony of some sort for a new 800 million dollar factory which is going to uh produce they don't do they actually produce batteries or the components of uh, batteries? The company is Anovian Technologies, Greg? Exactly. They're Anovian Technologies. They, they, they are part of the electric battery supply chain. They, they produce uh, critical elements to make electric batteries, and they directly benefit from all these federal green energy incentives that were backed by Joe Biden's administration. So it seemed quite the backdrop for the governor to head down to Bainbridge, a town of about 25,000 people that will get hundreds of jobs from this from this uh, development. Uh, governor Kemp went down there, used that as the backdrop uh, to pick a fight with Joe Biden about his electric vehicle agenda. We, we've heard him criticize these initiatives before, but not quite like this in an extended speech at a groundbreaking, which is usually focused on economic development. Governor Kemp had a couple audiences in mind. One was John Ossoff, the senator from Georgia, who is uh, invited but not allowed, but who wasn't a speaker at the event, but invited to the event and he was sitting in one of the front rows. And we heard the governor basically say it's, the, all Georgia's green energy developments were a result of state economic development policies and recruiters and and a, a focus on that field and not on the federal green energy incentives that are pumping billions of dollars into into the economies. 
so, uh, Charles, one of the reasons I want to focus on this um, is, foot first, there is no question that Governor Kemp and his economic development team have done a spectacular job in recruiting all of these EV and alternative uh, energy companies uh, to uh, the state. Of course, they've done it with great with economic incentives that some people have been uh, critical of. Nevertheless, they've done a wonderful job. But so is the federal government, the Biden Inflation Reduction Act, in providing money and incentives for them to come. So, Charles, this is one of those places where, oh, back in the old days, (laughs) Republicans and Democrats might come together and give each other pats on the back saying, look how we can work together to accomplish important things. That's not what happened here, Chuck. No, we used to talk about a thing called cooperative federalism, where the state and the federal government could work together hand in glove for promoting common good. Certainly the attraction of this EV industry into Georgia is a common good for the nation as well as for the state. But this is caught up in the general Democrat versus Republican politics that we had both they say, say that we had still had uh, Senator Perdue, he probably would would not have come in for criticism or something like this and would have been able to help claim credit for it, even if he voted against some of the, the funding at the federal level. But we don't have that. And then also the other overlay on this is, you know, this may be one of the opening salvos for what will become a senatorial contest in 2026. And, uh, you know, if indeed uh, Governor Kemp is looking at running for that Senate seat, then, then he's not going to want to say anything on the record here, which then uh, an ad for uh, us off re-election could say, well, even the governor says I do a great job. So he's not going to say anything good at this point, which could come back and be used against him in some television ad in a few years. Alan? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's exactly what's going on here. I mean, on, on on one level, it just seems bizarre that we see um, the governor, who's been a huge champion of this sort of, of development, uh, going down uh, to celebrate uh, a success story uh, that clearly was a result of a federal-state partnership and using this as an opportunity to attack the policies of the Biden administration and, uh, and claiming that they've been picked, they're, they're picking winners and losers, which is exactly what Georgia is doing. With these incentives, okay, uh, that's what economic development policy inevitably involves. Um, so uh, it's it's very strange until you put it in the broader context of partisan politics, uh, where if you're a uh, a Republican governor right now and you may aspire to higher office uh, to another office when your term is over, you simply cannot say anything good or positive about the other party. Um, you have to go on the attack. Uh, and uh, or you're going to antagonize and alienate the base of the party, and and for Kemp especially, this is he's got a problem because the Trump base and Trump himself are have been harshly critical of these sorts of policies and of of, of efforts to promote green energy uh, and to transition from fossil fuels to green energy. That's something that uh, Republicans generally have been very suspicious of, very critical of. Uh, and so Trump, Kemp is trying to have it both ways. You know, he's trying to say, yeah, I mean, I'm look at the economic development that that is occurring on my watch and that we're we're promoting. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to be seen as a champion of green energy in general. Uh, and he doesn't want to be seen as somehow uh, expressing any real concern about climate change, which, of course, is what is an underlying factor here at driving a, a lot of these efforts uh, to promote green energy. 
So it's all about partisan Andra? politics. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize, Ellen. Andra, jump in. That's fine. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. I think, you know, part of this is about credit claiming. Um, and so uh, Brian Kemp wants to distinguish himself from both John Ossoff and Joe Biden and so maintain his Republican credentials. Um, I also think that contextually, it's important to realize that environmentalism is now kind of coded in our partisan environment as a Democratic issue. Um, and so that's another reason why Brian Kemp wouldn't want to be seen as supporting things like, you know, that approximate the Green New Deal and other types of things. And then also, he may be taking his cues from Donald Trump. Donald Trump was in Michigan last week criticizing electric vehicles, uh, you know, basically implying that Detroit couldn't produce them. Like that was kind of the takeaway that I took from that, um, which isn't necessarily true. And so if there is this clear Republican resistance to not just uh, environmentally friendly policies, but also to electronic uh, electric vehicles, then uh, Brian Kemp is going to tout it as economic development, but he's going to kind of try to burnish his his Republican bona fides by also being hypercritical of it at the same time. So, uh, Greg, let's point out that Donald Trump not only said that in Michigan, he came to Georgia. He came to Columbus to the state Republican convention and, and criticized yeah. uh, green energy. And Later, governor, the, the federal green energy policies of the Inflation Reduction Act, and later, uh, I, maybe it was you who asked him, Governor Kemp said, yep, I agree with Trump on this point. I agree with that. Exactly. And yeah, <laughs> Professor Gillespie illustrates the tricky bind that the governor is in on this issue because, yeah, Donald Trump was in Columbus just a few weeks ago. He said on the first day of his next administration, he would work to end those green energy tax credits. And he didn't just say it to you know, a vacuum. There was raucous applause from the delegates. We had a UGA study that came out a, a couple months ago, commissioned for the AJC, that showed that while these green energy incentives are widely popular among Georgia voters, they are not among Republican voters. Uh, there is about one third who strongly oppose them. And this is a governor who, as Professor Bullock mentioned, is potential 2026 candidate against John Ossoff, but even in 2024, he still wants to be in the mix and looking like he supports one of the hated Republican, at least in Republican view, hated policies of President Biden could spell doom for him. So that helps illustrate the the, the interesting position he's in. And I think his response could end up being um, the, you know, the contours, the template for how other Republican state leaders who are, who are benefiting from this. There's no doubt there's been a boom, not just in Georgia, but other states for green energy uh, developments. The Financial Times did a study that showed U.S. commitments to manufacturing have more than doubled since these laws passed last year. So there's a surge in new construction. And, uh, you know, it can't just all be said, oh, this was already in the works before this law. Right now, we know that's not the case because new developments are starting to come to Georgia that, that are directly benefiting from these new laws. And so you're going to start seeing probably other governors take the same tack that the governor Kemp did, saying, oh, it's a, it's a result of state-level pro-business policies, not the federal incentives. So, Greg, let's talk about for a moment how things have changed within a matter of a decade. When, when, when the issue became, when Congress was dealing with deepening the Savannah port to allow it to bring in the biggest super cargo container ships, um, there was a very specific partnership between, was it Nathan Deal in office when Kasim Reed was? Was it the partnership mm -hmm. between the two of them? Great, right. So Republican Governor Nathan Deal and Democratic Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed recognized that deepening the Savannah port 
was not just of importance to the entire state, eventually would be important to Atlanta. And Greg, they actually worked together and gave each other credit for working together. You know, that's a really good point, because not only was, was Kasim Reed the mayor of Atlanta, he was also at the time this top ranking Democratic politician in Georgia, by many accounts, right? He, he was elected leader of the, of the state's biggest city. Um, and Barack Obama was president. And so Nathan Deal recognized that he needed some way to have inroads to a Democratic administration. And so Kasim Reed knew as well that, it, you know, what happened, what's good for Georgia is good for the state's biggest city and its capital and lobbied aggressively. And it culminated in actually then Vice President Joe Biden coming down to Savannah to announce the deepening of the port at an event that was hailed by Governor Governor Deal, other Republican leaders, and of course, Democrats. And so, yeah, there was definitely credit sharing. Here we have a very different situation. It's interesting also to see the Democratic response because you had the White House yesterday saying, no, we deserve the credit. This is all because of Biden's um, policies. But then you had Senator Ossoff who took a different tack. He said, look, he told me yesterday, this shouldn't be about political drama. This should be a, a moment that both sides of the aisle can celebrate. Look, you know, in his view, of course, the incentives factored very greatly into it. But he said, this is something that, you know, that the governor should praise as well. And there was a moment early on, uh, early in 2021, where it looked like Senator Ossoff could have, could maybe be that sort of entree into the Biden administration for Governor Kemp. I know there were some talks between them very, very early on. But now look, they, you know, it's it, politics has interfered and 2026 is, is right around the corner. And Brian Kent might be John Ossoff's biggest challenger. All right. Um, we're going to watch to see. Well, let me one more point about all this. Um, Andra, uh, Michelle Cottle in The New York Times wrote, I thought, a terrific piece on how Kemp has tried to straddle uh, the issues that he faces as supporting bringing green energy businesses to Georgia um, and not being seen as a tree hugger. Um, and and she, let me just read you, and then I'll get all of you if you want to comment, uh, part of what she wrote. She said, when pressed, Mr. Kemp seeks to distinguish his efforts from those of tree-hugging progressives. He insists he opposes meddling in the market through measures such as green energy targets or consumer incentives. Quote, I believe the best way to let a market develop is to let the consumer drive that, he asserted. The Biden administration has been forcing the market on people, much like the vaccine was forced on people, and it turned some people off. And Cottle then remarks, this is a pretty rich claim for a guy who stayed benefits from federal policies aimed at fighting climate change. Andra? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we have to acknowledge in some ways that Governor Kemp is trying to have it both ways. Uh, we understand what the partisan incentives are to do this. And it's also not surprising, even as I say all of that, that Kemp would actually try to frame this more in a market-driven kind of economic development type of fashion. Mm. It's consistent with Republican Party policy. It's consistent with its brand. Um, and also... It also is pretty consistent with uh, some of the changes in behavior. So, you know, as much as as, as Brian Kemp is going to criticize green energy initiatives broadly defined and ones that have the support of, of Democratic policymakers, he also sees that this is the wave of the future and that other people kind of come to, say, purchasing a, an electric vehicle for entirely different reasons. Yeah, some people do it because they want to reduce their carbon footprint. But some people started to look at electric vehicles when gas started to go, you know, four or $5 um, a gallon, because they realized that in the long run, it might actually be cheaper for them. And so 
I think broadly speaking, at the end of the day, as we see technology shifting, right, people are going to come to it for different reasons. And, and, and we have to provide space for that. Frank Kemp is trying to make space for that. Yeah, it doesn't always make sense. It's inconsistent. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that's how everybody's going to end up in the same place more than likely. So uh, if you want to have a quick response, Chuck, and then Ellen, and then we'll move on. Yeah, it, just, it seems to me that what we're really saying here are that uh, Kemp and Ossoff live in uh, different partisan worlds. But the world, their, par their partisanship is different in that for Kemp, there is this huge rift within the Republican Party. You know, he did not go down to the state convention. And yet, you know, all the survey data shows that most Georgia Republicans are very much Kemp, I mean, uh, 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 Trump supporters. So Kemp has to always be looking over his shoulder about that. So he's got to appeal to his base. Ossoff was in a better position, and it looks like right now the Democratic Party is very united. He doesn't have to worry. You know, could he get renominated? Sure, he could get renominated. So in the quote that uh, that Greg gave us, yeah, Ossoff is playing this nonpartisan. He's reaching out beyond just playing the Democrats and saying, hey, this is good for the entire state. Everybody can get behind me. And what we've seen in the last couple of election cycles is that, yeah, both parties need to be in a position where they can get beyond their base, because if all mm -hmm. you've got is your base, then you end up losing. Mm -hmm. And if you don't believe me, ask ask David Perdue. Uh, Alan, one last yeah. comment. That's exactly right. What we're seeing from Ossoff and what we've also seen from Warnock uh, is their, their, their uh, strategy is the sort of the traditional strategy for uh, a politician in a swing state, like what has become a swing state, right? Georgia is now, a, you know, really a swing state. That means, as Chuck was saying, you 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 have to win over some of these swing voters. Uh, it's a relatively small slice of the electorate, but they're crucial uh, to winning. And and that's I think uh, what what Ossoff is clearly uh, trying to do here. Kemp, on the other hand, is looking more at kind of the Republican primary electorate and thinking about what he would need to do to win a Republican nomination. Uh, uh, if he was going to uh, you know, run for, say, Senate in the future or some other office. Okay, um, we can uh, get to our first break in a moment. I do want to mention one quick thing. I've said it on this show before. If, in fact, uh, what we're seeing now is the beginning of the sparring that uh, is going to take place between Ossoff and Kemp for the 2026 Senate seat, I just want to say it one more time. There are an awful lot of governors who have gone to the United States Senate and really regretted it because they suddenly realized, hey, I'm not the CEO of a state anymore. I'm just one of 100 men. Ask Zell Miller. He'll tell you that. Let's get to a break. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Alan Abramowitz, Andrew Gillespie, Charles Bullock, Greg Bluestein, join me for today's show. And by the way, slow down your Twitter thumbs. I know that Zell Miller, one of the giants of Georgia politics, has passed away. So you, when I said ask <laughs> Zell Miller, I was being figurative, not literal. Don't come after me. 
All right, let's move on uh, to uh, to this extraordinary moment. I think many people would say in uh, a test of our democracy. Uh, yesterday, the United States Supreme Court uh, ruled on a case involving what's called the independent state legislature theory. It's a theory that Republicans in North Carolina were pushing because they had been uh, frustrated in their efforts to reapportion congressional districts in the state to favor Republicans uh, uh, in, in, uh, appropriately over Democrats uh, in this state. But what the North Carolina Republicans said is that the United States Constitution's election cause, uh, clause uh, gives legislatures final say in decisions about federal uh, uh, elections which means they said state courts cannot intervene. The clause reads thus, the times, places, and manner of elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Now, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, said that's not the case. Uh, There is, of course, state courts can uh, weigh in on decisions about federal elections by uh, districting. Greg, let me give people an example, just very briefly, of what had the court gone the other way, this could have met in practical terms. We all know that in 2020, uh, Joe Biden won Georgia, but there was the effort to overturn the results, to get the legislature to nullify the results, and uh, a group of fake electors were appointed to go to Washington, possibly to cast votes for Donald Trump. If at that point the court had ruled the other way in this, the state Supreme Court would have had no power to intervene in whether or not those fake electors or efforts by the legislature to overturn the election uh, were in fact a violation of law. Greg? That's exactly right. And in Georgia, you know, as you mentioned, dozens of state lawmakers signed a letter urging Governor Kemp, Speaker mm-hmm. at the time, Speaker David Ralston, and the Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan to call a special session to do exactly that. And this is, we're talking about a, a theory that was once on the margins, once very fringe, that it gained traction during the Trump era, that argued that state courts have little or really no authority to question um, what state legislatures do. Uh, how how they act when it pertains to election laws for federal contest. The, the most concise summary I've seen of this is the, sti- the with this ruling, the 60 ruling. Yet yet another, by the way, another of several rulings where three liberal members joined with three more conservative members on significant issues. You know, we've seen a few on immigration and others and national security recently. But the 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 summary is the nation's top court maintained the power of state courts to review election laws under state constitutions or urging the federal court system to not abandon their own duty to exercise judicial review. So it just it basically reinstills that power in state courts to, to review election laws. Chuck, um, the uh, it, what Greg said about the split in the court was fascinating. It was the Chief Justice Roberts who wrote the majority opinion, joining with the three liberal justices on the court, and Brett Kavanaugh, who in a couple of cases this session has crossed over from that conservative uh, majority to uh, join the more liberal justices in a couple of decisions, Chuck. Yeah, with the appointment of uh, more conservative justices, it really makes 
Kavanaugh kind of the swing justice. So it was for several years. It was Chief Justice Roberts. Now he is he's now on the liberal side of this this court, actually. But let me approach this in a little bit different perspective than, than Greg took on. And that is this was a redistricting case uh, is what it boils mm-hmm. down to. And so to approach it from that perspective. Uh, three, four years ago, another case that came out of North Carolina, and both much of the, the last decade was fought over what is partisan redistricting? Is it something the courts will intercede with? And throughout the 2010s, mm-hmm. all kinds of things were written, a number of cases got before the Supreme Court. And ultimately, at the very end of that decade, the Supreme Court says, we're not going to handle that. But here's what the guidance they give. It's not a federal question. You can't get relief in the federal courts. But in the Rucho case out of North Carolina, Chief Justice Roberts says, go to your state court. That's where you may get some relief. And sure enough, almost immediately, the North Carolina Supreme Court threw out a plan, which should have been challenged as a partisan gerrymander. It imposed the father of, I guess, the current plan, which you got redrawn with the new census. So to some extent, I think it almost locked in the chief justice, at least, and yeah. If he ruled the other way, it's kind of, oh, forget about those things that I said back in the Rucho case. I was, you know, kind of out of my mind at that point. So I think he was kind of locked in. And so then it does make this uh, position taken by Kavanaugh, you know, quite significant. And then it goes beyond beyond him and gets Amy Conan Bryant also then signs on yeah. to it. Alan? Yeah, I, th- I think there are a lot of interesting things about this case. I mean, I mean, for one thing, you know, uh, the, the court, uh, the, the conservatives, and some of the, I think one of the conservatives just basically wanted the one of the court to reject the case. It's not 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 here on the grounds that it was a the issue was moot be, be, because in fact, um, since that original <clears throat> decision that was made by the North Carolina Supreme Court, that court itself has flipped uh, and re, and actually reversed the, the decision that was made earlier. So so it, that would have been another way out if the if the uh, court. If the justices didn't didn't want to make a decision at all, um, but obviously they did. A majority of them did, and and uh, they rejected this independent legislature theory, which uh, it re- really was, has been viewed uh, by most legal scholars, at least until recently, as, as very extreme uh, and something that, that w- would affect not just redistricting but uh, the conduct of presidential elections, mm-hmm. and would allow, as, as, as has been said. It would have allowed, you know, a, a state legislature to overturn the results of the results of the popular vote in a state and, and and choose their own slate of electors. Um, and if they were unhappy with the, with the results of the election or found some excuse uh, to to claim that there were, you know, there were errors or, or um, there were problems with the way the uh, the the election was uh, vote was conducted in the state. So uh, something that certainly was a, a real threat. Um, to 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 democracy, I think, and we uh, avoided that. But um, you know, in in the decision itself, it, 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 which Roberts wrote, um, he indicated you know that, that there are limits to how far the court a court can go uh, in overseeing the decisions made by the legislature. So so there's that little asterisk there. Uh, we don't know what that means exactly in the future for. Like how far will the court, uh, uh, how much power will the court grant, uh, the Supreme Court grant to state courts to oversee the conduct of elections by the state legislature? Well, also though, uh, Andra, uh, Chuck points out that maybe uh, uh, Roberts felt locked in, uh, but uh, his his uh, 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 writing on this decision 
uh, he did say there was a role for federal courts, uh, perhaps. He opened the door for more federal intervention in state uh, uh, election uh, dis- redistricting and other matters. Well, yeah, I mean, now that this has become hyper-politicized and it's come hyper-politicized to the point that it's actually um, raising questions about separation of powers and, um, you know, there's no way that the federal courts can't not be an arbiter there, right? And that was the danger of this with the combination of the Supreme Court saying that they were getting out of the partisan uh, gerrymandering business and then, you know, with people sort of trying to propound this particular theory of the independent state legislature, this would would leave state courts completely bereft of actually being able to have any say at all in a really important aspect of, of, of legislation, um, which doesn't make sense in his actual inconsistent with the federal constitution. And then given the fact that these things are as contested as they appear to be and could possibly be more contested in the future, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which uh, the Supreme Court doesn't feel that it has like the jurisdiction to actually be able to hear appeals because there inevitably would, will be an appeal just given how contested uh, these election contests are and how willing parties are to pers- uh, pursue litigation to attempt to try to reverse an election outcome that they don't like. Chuck? Yeah, very briefly, about the only way you now the Supreme Court or the federal courts are going to get involved in redistricting is one of two ways. One, over the issue of population equality, and that really has become a dead issue pretty much. You know, nobody gets much out of line on that. So the only way you can now get into the federal courts is if you raise a civil rights issue under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and you allege that a minority group has given less chance than whites to elect their candidates of choice. And that, again, will be the issue which is going to play out here in Georgia in the next few weeks or next month. I, well, and in fact, I want to talk about that. But, Greg, before we move to that, what's happening, what could be happening in Georgia as a result of a couple of Supreme Court decisions, I, I want to s- make this point. Um, this is another example of people, I think, are going to end up perceiving the politicization of courts. So, and by that, I mean, when the district map in North Carolina was drawn to, uh, to uh, give Republicans far too many districts based on population, uh, it went to the state Supreme Court, which at the time was uh, dominated. A majority of the justices were Democrats. Uh, then there was an election, and Republicans took control of the state Supreme Court. And so the case came back to them uh, and those justices, now Republicans, overturned what mm-hmm. their previous, the previous judges had done in that and said, we're going to restore the majority districts uh, to Republican uh, leaning, despite the fact that it doesn't represent the population of the state anymore. It's just another terrible example of how we're viewing the courts these days. And libraries worth of books have been written about ways to, you know, reform the system to take politics out of it. But the truth is politics is involved in everything from workplace decisions on up to the most important, obviously, legal decisions before our nation's uh, highest bodies. So uh, I don't know what the best answer is, but certainly, you know, liberals and conservatives can agree that politics has has interfered with a lot of our, 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 our most important legal decisions. All right, Greg, before we got to get to a break, and and then I'll ask each of you to weigh in, let's talk about Georgia specifically now. 
Um, this week, another ruling that uh, came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, didn't get a lot of attention, was one in which essentially what happened was the Supreme Court allowed Louisiana's congressional map to be redrawn because it, they needed to add another black majority district um, because they hadn't drawn lines that, that fairly gave representation to the black population of the state. We also know that not long ago, the court ruled in Alabama. This is another case in which Kavanaugh came over to the majority, um, saying that Alabama needed to draw a second minority district. They had illegally uh, uh, mis- underrepresented black voters there. And now, Greg, we're going to look and see how those decisions and others are going to play into a case, very similar cases before District Court Judge Steve Jones here challenging Georgia's congressional map. Greg? And all eyes are going to be on a September 5th hearing date for that that ju- that hearing before Judge Jones involving challenges to Georgia's congressional map, which, of course, resulted in Republicans gaining one House seat in last year's midterm election. There was talk that Republicans could even try to draw a, a map with, that would gain them two seats, but ended up winning, uh, drawing a map that was more catered toward one seat. And that was, of course, the 6th District, which was redrawn from a fairly moderate but Republican-leaning district at least a decade ago uh, in the northern suburbs that, of course, Lucy McBath ended up flipping back in 2018. They redrew that district to be so conservative that she said, you know what, I'm not even going to try. I'm going to go next door and challenge an incumbent Democrat, um, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux. She defeated Carolyn Bordeaux in the primary and now holds the 7th district, the 6th district held by Congressman Rich McCormick. Uh, that is the district that we are we're most focused on. And that was that's the one that could be redrawn de- depending the outcome mm-hmm. of this, this court hearing. Alan and yeah, Andra. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. So um, you had a situation where um, prior to redistricting, you had two swing districts in Georgia, the sixth and seventh, uh, both of which flipped from Republican to Democratic control. And, you know, Republican is in the legislature decided that uh, what they would do, you know, is, is turn those into one safe Republican district and one safe Democratic district and ensure that a Republican would take over one of those districts. That's what and that's what happened. Um, so right now, there are actually no swing districts in Georgia. And if you look at the House map, um, really, the second district comes the closest, but it's it's pretty Democratic leaning. So. So, you know, all all the 14 House districts in Georgia are, are pretty much safe Democratic districts or safe Republican districts. Uh, and there's very little chance of any of the current under the current, at least for now, that could change over time. Um, so, you know, but re, a redrawing of the map certainly could have a, a significant effect here. Could could we could easily go could easily go back to give, giving the Democrats uh, a, a sixth seat of those of those 14 um, and an additional minority uh, um, a m- member uh, of the House delegation, uh, or potentially even a seven-seven split. Because if you if you look at the statewide popular vote for the House of Representatives and just add up all the votes, it's very close to fifty-fifty. Um, it's just slightly. I think Republicans got slightly more votes overall statewide, but it is not much. Andra, uh, finish us off on this subject, please. Yeah, um, you know, Georgia's going to be more challenging than Alabama and Louisiana are. 
um, for a number of reasons, not to say that there aren't cases that could be made about potential uh, uh, packing in particular. And then I think, you know, somebody might make a question about the second district about whether or not district lines were drawn to pull enough Black Democratic voters out of the district to make that seat more competitive. And I think that that question will certainly come up when Sanford Bishop retires as to whether or not a Democrat could replace him in that particular district. But the other reason why this is a lot harder is um, partisanship and race aren't as neatly correlated with each other in Georgia as they are in Louisiana and Alabama. And also, I think the sort of disparity in terms of the, the proportion of African-American voters in the state and the number of, of seats where Blacks actually have a reasonable chance of, of being able to win because those uh, districts are drawn Democratic is actually much different here. So, you know, of the 14 uh, districts we have here, four of them are represented by African-Americans and we have a population that's about 30% Black. Um, you know, though the numbers are somewhat comparable in Alabama and in Louisiana, but in those districts, they only had one Black representative where, you know, the state had six in Louisiana and seven districts total in, in, in Alabama. So, like, that's why it stands out as actually being pretty um, egregious. Um, and so, you know, the, the case, I assume, will proceed. Somebody will try. But I think the challenge is, is, is that it looks a little bit different here, in part because we actually do have some diversity in our representation already. Okay, thank you for a really, really smart conversation uh, about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling and where Georgia could be headed in the months ahead. I got to get to the final break of the show. Back with more in a moment. Quick program note tomorrow, tomorrow is the final full panel edition of Political Rewind before GPB shuts us down. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be on on Friday. But on Friday, you some of you will recall that when uh, uh, Kevin Riley announced his retirement from the AJC, um, we did a show in which I interviewed him about his career uh, in newspapering. Well, Friday, uh, Kevin Riley is turning the tables. We are going to talk on our very final show for GPB. Uh, he's going to ask me questions about my uh, uh, career. Not going to be anywhere near as interesting as the Kevin show was, but I'm going to do my best. So I hope you'll join us for both of those shows. All right, Greg Bluestein. Um, so we've seen another spate of anti-Semitic incidents, in, particularly in north, uh, northern suburbs. One of them that caught, got a lot of attention was at Chabad, which is the, really the most orthodox of uh, uh, synagogues in any given community of East Cobb, actually had a small group of Nazi sympathizers waving swastikas outside the synagogue. They're, they're really kind of annoying and disgusting, and I don't know how much attention they deserve. But they did get the attention, as you wrote, uh, of Representative Brent Cox, who's an evangelical Republican who was really offended. Tell, tell us about your story. Yeah, what's interesting about Brent Cox is, yeah, he's an evangelical Christian from the northern exurbs of Atlanta. He represents a Dahlonega-based district. Um, but what I didn't realize until after this horrific act of hate uh, was that he has established a long-term relationship, a very close friendship with the rabbi of Chabad of Cobb. 
Um, and he has become, he's a freshman Republican. He was just elected in the in, in last year's midterm in a newly drawn district from redistricting that added uh, some new Republican-leaning districts up in the exurbs. And he's become one of the loudest voices for uh, for Jewish causes in a legislature that only has one Jewish member. That's State Representative Esther Panich. And he's he's one of the, the Republican lawmakers who say that in the aftermath of not just this, and of course, there was demonstrators outside of a Macon synagogue as well. And we've mm -hmm. talked about the flyers that were delivered to my house and other other uh, members of the Jewish community um, in, over the past year, the anti-Semitic flyers. But in the wake of all this, you know, calling for new anti-discrimination measures, more stringent legal protections uh, for, for particularly for anti-Semitism in the state law. We know that bill passed the House uh, with a solid majority, but it got stalled in the Senate. There'll be a fresh push to pass that bill in the Senate next year. Um, I was taken, Alan Abramowitz, by a quote that uh, uh, Greg got from uh, Representative Cox, who said, quote, how could they do this to my synagogue? And, and that's a beautiful quote mm -hmm. in many ways, um, to see this man, an evangelical Christian, uh, uh, basically embracing a Chabad mm -hmm. community, which is for, and, and the Chabadniks, as we call them in the Jewish community, um, do manifest their Judaism in a very, very uh, uh, definitive uh, way, in a very visible way. Some of us don't really, you know, we walk through the community and maybe some people don't know who we are, but the Chabadniks are a little different, and it is amazing the Coxes embraced them. Yeah, and I thought it was encouraging that we, we heard the political leadership of the state pretty much in, the, in one united voice, you know, strongly condemning uh, this. The governor you know, himself has certainly strong, strongly condemned it. Um, and we have to keep in mind here that the group that's doing this uh, here is a very tiny group of people um, who apparently go from one place to another just to make trouble. Uh, and to get attention, and, and they're succeeding in getting attention. But it's it's like there are like a couple dozen people who are who are doing this, from what from what I gather. Not to say they don't have other sympathizers around the state, but um, this is not getting much you know popular support. But I, I do think this sort of act, these sort of activities probably do increase the likelihood that the anti-Semitism bill uh, will will come back in the next session of the legislature. Uh, there you know maybe with some modifications. Um, to the definition or some some way of getting around some of the concerns that were expressed about that um, and it makes it maybe more likely that it will it will be passed. It, it would have no impact on activities like this. Um, so you know there's not much question I think that the activities here were protected by are protected by the First Amendment. Um, the hate crimes law would only apply if those activities were connected with some other some other action that actually involved in something illegal. All right. Um, thank you for that. Um, Andre and Chuck, if you don't mind my moving on to a final topic, uh, if you want to weigh in on that, you can. But, but Andra, um, I'd like to ask you about this Marjorie Taylor Greene story. We know that when Kevin McCarthy was running for Speaker mm -hmm. of the House, Marjorie Taylor Greene, an extreme right-wing Republican, uh, cast in her lot with him, which was, I've said it on this show, a very savvy thing to do because it suddenly gave her a power that she never had as a fringe Republican. She has stuck with McCarthy through thick and thin. Mm -hmm. And now the far right Freedom Caucus of the House is considering whether to expel her from the Freedom Caucus mm -hmm. because she's become too mainstream. 
Andra? So I actually do think that this is tied to the last discussion. I think because we've talked a lot about Christian nationalism lately, and we know that there are elements mm. of anti-Semitism within Christian nationalism that we don't distinguish that properly from evangelical Christianity, which is pro-Israel. Like we take the covenant seriously. Mm. God told Abraham, I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. It is not surprising um, that an evangelical will come out in, in defense of, of a synagogue against anti-Semitism. Um, that being said, and, and, and I think sort of the ties are Marjorie Taylor Greene's flirtations with Christian, uh, not flirtations or outright sort of outspoken sort of identification with Christian nationalism. Um, you know, this is an interesting debate, and I'm not going to defend her cursing at Lauren Boebert on the floor of the, of the House of Representatives because that's uncivil behavior. Uh, but there are rifts within the Freedom Caucus, obviously, that are, are emerging as a result of this. And then there also is, an, in general, kind of a lack of strategy. Um, I always wonder sort of what my colleagues who use rational choice theory would sort of look at when they look at how the Freedom Caucus could lose a legislative fight and then they just escalate the next week as opposed to de-escalating um, the next week with some of their procedural moves. And there are clear um, debates about tactic, which are actually like legitimate debates because some people prefer propose things that don't actually make a whole lot of sense here. Um, so you know, we still don't know yet for sure whether or not Green has been expelled from the Freedom Caucus. I think that she's being entrepreneurial in terms of her alignment with Kevin McCarthy, and that might be rubbing some people the, uh, the wrong way, especially if they're more ideological purists in terms of whatever their point of view is. I think the big question is, is that if Marjorie Taylor Green is expelled from the House Freedom Caucus and everybody knows about it, does she pivot in terms of what her self-presentation is? She sometimes has, has given sort of evidence of the fact that, that, that she can um, pivot in terms of her self-presentation and tactics, you know, I would just want to see whether or not she would actually all of a sudden kind of become a new type of, of, of right-wing Republican. Uh, by the way, I want to thank you for making that statement about evangelical Christians. That's really important. Um, there's a difference between the evangelicals and some of the really extreme right-wing uh, uh, Christians out there. Thank you for that. Chuck, a final comment from you on all this. Yeah, it's awfully difficult to be a true believer and then also provide leadership in a diverse organization. And, uh, you know, years ago, some of the members of the Black Caucus had to trim their sails once they became committee leaders and things of this nature. And so if she wants to be part of that leadership team with Kevin McCarthy, then she can't go along with everything that the Freedom Caucus does because the Freedom Caucus isn't really that interested in governing. You know, they, they're opposed to governing. If you're going to help govern, you got to be more of a moderate. Uh, and that's a, a relative term. I realize that. You know, she is not going to move too far to the left, but she's going to have to come off of some of the things she might have said a year or two ago. Greg, what's fascinating about that, I think, is that uh, the Freedom Caucus may throw her out say that she's not ideological pure anymore, it's not going to have a play a bit of a difference in her getting reelected, I would guess, in the 14th district. Not at all. And look, you know, she's no pragmatist, but with power comes responsibility. Now that she's one of the most trusted allies of uh, deputies of House Speaker McCarthy, she has to play that a different role. And this quote that she gave a few weeks ago really stands out to me. I live in reality, not conservative fantasy land. She's head of her vote yeah. in that ceiling bill. Well, right, let's, not <laughs> let's, let's not overstate that. All right. All right. We're Alan, this, Alan, this Alan, we are out of time. Alan, we're out of time. I because I need to say thank you, Alan Abramowitz. Thank you, Andre Gillespie, Charles Bullock, and Greg Bluestein. I wish we could talk for another hour, 
We can't, but we will be back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, be good to one another, and panel, I love you all, and I'm so grateful for the contributions you've made to this show. Goodbye, everybody.